doing my thing. I'm going to work. But, but your heart. My heart. <laughs> my heart's still ticking. Yeah, but the doctor Listen, said. I know what I'm doing. You know, the only place I get hurt is out there. The world don't give a shit about me. I'm here. I'm really here. What do you call that? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Film historian Stephen Benedict and I are going to look at Darren Aronofsky's 2008 classic, The Wrestler, starring Mickey Rourke. Um, Love this film. This was going to be paired with Black Swan, which came out two years later as one film. Trying to understand the intersectionality of professional wrestling and ballet at the highest level is a weird one, but I would love to have seen what he would have come up with as long as it wasn't like mother <laughs> but anyway i love the wrestler i love mickey rourke's performance you know growing up with jake the snake as your favorite wrestler as a kid and to see where he ended up and all of these documentaries that focused on him in recent years uh mickey does all of that tremendous justice the pathos of these guys and just how tragic most of their lives end up being and I tried to get Mickey on the show for this, sent a lot of text messages that were sort of bizarrely answered, <laughs> but it didn't work out too well. Nonetheless, Stephen Benedict is a wonderful person to talk to about this. I wish we could have had Mickey Rourke as well. So I hope you enjoy The Wrestler, this week's film on No Happy Endings. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by the fact that Aronofsky is looking at one of the highest forms of art in terms of the, the collective appreciation of it and one of the lowest forms of art and looking at how navigating those waters for the performer involved yeah. is actually very, very similar. Um, so today we are going to start with the first of these two films, The Wrestler, which came out in 2008, starring Mickey Rourke, Marissa Tomei, and Evan Rachel Wood, who I think probably stole the film yeah. for me. Um, among three tremendous performances. Um, I love both of these films, and I don't want to see either of them again for a long time <laughs> because this was hard to watch. They are. I mean, even from, from Aronofsky's first film, Pi, they're, all his films are incredibly intense. Um, and... You can't watch them too all that often. I mean, I think his greatest work is *Reckoning for a Dream*, the fantastic um, source material, source material Hubert Selby Jr.'s novel. But *The Fountain*, is, sorry, not *The Fountain*, *The Wrestler* um, is a great insight into the underbelly of, you know, um, WWF. Right? I mean, it's it's not the high end of it. It's not the huge stadia. And you see the really the, the the broken lives that are are sort of stumbling blindly through the alleys there, and that's what makes it really really intense, engaging, but eventually exhausting to the point that you can't watch it anymore. While I was watching it, I just couldn't help but be reminded of our favorite boxing picture, is Fat City. Yeah, and they're very similar except in tone. 
Mm-hmm. Aronofsky loves turning it up to 11. You know, yeah. this one goes to 12. And Fat City is very much a realist one. Aronofsky is an expressionist. And that's that's what feeds into how difficult it is to not to enjoy, but to endure the film. It's really you feel the punches, you feel the hits, you feel the emotional exhaustion, you feel the rejection. And because at the end of the day, you know, he doesn't seem to have. Randy, he doesn't seem to have a discernible dream on which to, to, to survive. And I think that's the reason why we, we arrive at that really, really tough, sad ending. Yeah, it, I think it's very interesting. I think the overlap between the story of this wrestler and, and boxers, I mean, we're doing a podcast called No Happy Endings because these guys cannot walk away from the one drug that allows them to sort of very ephemerally escape their demons and and late in the picture Rourke has this one well one of many great lines that he delivers um that the only place that he's been hurt is outside the ring despite the fact that he's uh, very conscious of participating in this final bout against the ayatollah (laughs) is going to be suicide and i think that with a lot of the audience of boxers who have have these people as heroes, they wonder what could make them hang on? Why are they hanging on? Are they delusional about staying in there and taking the risks that they do? My experience spending time with a number of them, and, and I've not spent any time with professional wrestlers, but I certainly uh, was fascinated with them as a kid, you know, and, and including the character on which the wrestler is primarily based on, Macho Man Randy Savage. And a little bit of Jake the Snake also, which had a tremendous documentary about him beyond the mat, about his drug addiction and, uh, you know, bordering on total self-destruction of his life, family and all of that, um, is that there is a huge death drive in these guys, a huge masochism, a huge degree of insecurity that um, as much as people talk about wrestling being fake, what's not fake is the injuries. What's not fake is the amount of work these guys have to put in, traveling for almost 300 days a year, the drugs that they need to take to be the size they are, to be up for that kind of workload, and then to come down from that kind of workload, to go to sleep. It is uh, a profession where I would say, uh, you know, these guys are dying in their... 30s and 40s more than just about any other profession I could think of. I mean, there's websites devoted to dead wrestlers. And uh, I think just the data that we have, you know, if you go into professional wrestling at the highest level, the actuary tables are not friendly to how long you're going to last. Yeah. I mean, when I was watching it, I I had seen recently uh, an interview uh, online with Paul Thomas Anderson. And um, it was just going through YouTube and I just landed on this interview. I was sort of led through to it. And he was talking, he was promoting um, Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. And he just, he made a comment and that struck with me, it struck me, reminded me when I was watching The Wrestler. He said, you know, the truth of the matter is that a lot of the people in the porn industry um, either burn out or die, burn out and die very young or find God. Hmm. And um, you know, I don't know enough about the burnout rate and the death rate amongst porn um, performers, but I would wouldn't be surprised if it is as just as dangerous 
uh, it certainly is just as destructive. Um, I don't know whether they have a death death drive, but there's profound insecurities that lead so many people into that industry. Yeah, I think that in 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 Aronofsky's work, there is clearly an element. I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily say it's organized religion, but there's certainly an element of spirituality in his films. It's it's purgatory that they're living in, and they're looking for. Um, redemption is too easy a word because you don't know what their original sin was, but they're looking for some sort of salvation. Um, and if sometimes the salvation comes in death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I think you have the line where he's seeking to, you know, in a sort of AA capacity, make amends yeah. with family members. So he seeks out his daughter and you see her quote kind of out of the blue, uh, the Bible and referencing Jesus, referencing, uh, I think, the passion of the Christ, which she encourages him to see. But you're right. Uh, Aronofsky likes martyrs. A lot of his characters go to their doom. Um, they have their their explanations. I mean, we'll we'll get to Black Swan, where again you have the central character Natalie Portman saying, you know, to have that moment of perfection is is worth the martyrdom. It's yeah. that that's the only way a life is really worthy is if you give everything you have. And here at the other end of the spectrum, at least uh, artistically. With, with pro wrestling, um, Mickey Rourke, I mean, just the casting, I think we need to address here. When you have somebody whose entire life informs the role and the point at which you get them couldn't be more perfect and you have that face that yes. Mickey Rourke does where we have to remember going back to the 80s, eight and a half weeks, diner, these big performances where he stood out, this guy was probably as close as Hollywood has come to giving us the next Brando. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a beautiful young man. You know, he was, the camera absolutely adored him. And he was playing these outcasts, um, these marginalized characters, characters who couldn't find, couldn't find it very, very hard to fit in. Rumblefish was my introduction to Mickey Rourke. And we all, we all my friends wanted to be the motorcycle boy. We didn't want to be Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon was the guy who's who's kissing Diane Lane, and you think, okay, well, that's the guy I want to be. No, I want to be the motorcycle boy because he's so cool, and he quotes poetry, and he has the whole thing together, and he's got a lovely voice and all this sort of stuff. And then, yeah, as you said, nine and a half weeks, and he goes on, and then something dreadful happens with his career. I don't know what, but it just went. It didn't even go south. It just went under. It went through the earth. It just vanished, and then. Um, then I think he turned up, didn't he make the movie Homeboy? I think Homeboy, uh, that weird semi-porno with his wife. Wild Orchid. Wild Orchid that became a, a hugely abusive relationship behind the scenes, which seemed to dominate the headlines of the film. Were they actually having sex? And it is such a singularly awful, awful film. Um but it, it kind of led to sort of his mystique of, of what, tr what a tragically misplaced talent he had and potential. And, and I think also it's fair to add on top of his looks and charisma and how much the camera loved him is he's a hell of a good actor yeah. and, and has this mix that Brando did of the feminine and the masculine. And, and you mentioned that voice. It's another feature, as much as the face has been warped and mangled and deranged into something almost kabuki theater-like mask, 
the, the, the voice that he had going back to even the early 90s, I mean, I have a fairly high voice and he's definitely an octave higher than me. Yeah, and in, by the time we get to the wrestler, it sounds like a chainsaw trying to go into a stone. It's oh, it's yeah, just yeah. Yeah. Some, something's happened to his nose in the nasal passage, and it's almost as if the bridge of the nose has gone into the back of the head because he's been hit. So <laughs> it, you know, you're absolutely right. That's a beautiful thing. Also, you were talking about um, his voice, but I remember the, the. I think, as I said, to you, Rumblefish the first time I saw him, but then looking back. I didn't realize it, but um, I'd actually seen him in Body Heat, not realizing that he was Mickey Rourke. And he plays the arsonist who's advising William Hurt how to do this. And he just has these fantastic ticks, which Brando would have had. But it, the way he moves his hands and he touches his lip and um, he's playing this arsonist, but he's very effeminate. And it, it's that mercurial uncertainty that which way is he going to go in the story? It makes him incredibly magnetic. Your eye sticks to him like like glue yeah you can't take, and so does the camera the camera adores him and so then he seems to have the world at his feet and everything goes wrong and um, there's some directors who love working with him like tony scott brought him back for a man on fire francis ford coppola used him as a little cameo in the rainmaker um but you know even then Although you knew that he was on the peri perimeters, it was almost like he was on the outside of the fence the casting directors had set up. Sorry, Mickey, you can't come in anymore. And he's at the chain link fence saying, come on, come on, come on. Just as he says to the, the, the manager of the, the, um, the trailer park, come on, you know that I'm good for it. I know that I'm good for it. Yeah. Um, and so he plays these sort of eccentric, gone to seed characters who once had greatness within their grasp, um, but nothing like it in here. And it it is, it brings tears to your eyes because you're looking at the face that you once adored or worshipped or admired or wanted to be. And I think, you know, the thing that I always remember uh, when they when he made Homeboy, I remember, I don't know which critic said it, they just called, they said, this is raging bullshit. Huh. You know, and uh, it's the thing is, we've all, it's, it's very easy for us to laugh when we're in our 20s going oh what an idiot well fool and all this sort of stuff but once once we get to a certain age we look back and we go yeah but it's not easy and it's very easy for us to laugh at the guy a little bit of empathy and sympathy for anybody's career that's just disappears as i said goes into the earth um, and and I, I think we need to add also a little context especially since ostensibly this is a boxing podcast that this guy abandoned his acting career where he is one of the great male actors of his generation, um, you know, up there with Sean Penn. And yet, where does he go into this bizarre fledgling boxing career, which amounts to absolutely nothing aside from an alibi for him to excuse the damage to his face, where he claims that it all happened in boxing, even though... He really didn't take many beatings in his boxing career. It just seems like he doesn't want to acknowledge the full extent of his plastic surgery. I would encourage listeners, if like like ourselves, you are particularly interested in Mickey Rourke as a phenomena, he gave a tremendous interview with an unlikely source, which is Piers, uh, not what, what Piers Morgan. Morgan uh, yeah. It's a forty-five minute interview that is one of the more interesting revealing interviews I've heard with any actor. And I think it was, it was recorded shortly after this film's release and all the buzz associated with it and the Oscar nomination and everything. 
But Mickey is obsessed with boxing, was obsessed with the idea that boxing was sort of his true calling in life. Uh, I will share with you an anecdote. I don't think we've talked about this privately, but I think you'll get a kick out of it. Um, I interviewed Mickey Rourke for the, the series on Netflix, Losers, and we went to his favorite cafe in Beverly Hills to interview him. He showed up late and had this one of those big black SUVs, which it seems like once you become famous, automatically you're not allowed to drive in anything else. And I at first thought it was like an 80-year-old woman with extensive plastic surgery when he got out. He looked, the face was even worse than it is in The Wrestler considerably, and he's no longer doing steroids, so he's probably 150, 160 pounds. And as he came in, he lights up a cigarette and orders an espresso, and his lips had just had something done to them, some form of surgery. So it was like going to the dentist. They were frozen. So probably 10% of the espresso was drooling down his lips. He, he just he, he couldn't feel it, and he didn't want to be seen smoking because he doesn't want anybody to pick up the habit as he did. But it was astounding that we are there interviewing him to discuss um, the boxer who became an actor, Michael Bent, uh, the star of the episode we were recording. But Mickey didn't want to really talk about Bent as an actor. Instead, he wanted to relate to him as a boxer, as if we were interviewing Mickey based on his boxing career rather than his acting career. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable quandary because, as you mentioned, Sean Penn. And they are pretty much around the same age. They burst onto the scene at the same time, playing similar roles. Um, and then in this year, which the, the year in which the wrestler comes out, they're both up for the Oscar. Mm. And um, Sean Penn wins it for playing Harvey Milk. And um, however difficult and troubling and traumatic Mickey Rourke's career and life has been, Sean Penn has been through the ringer as well. Sure. But I would sort of maybe suggest that he's got a better set of enablers or handlers to to talk him out or to talk him back in off the ledge you know um sean penn you know is very has great physical presence he was also compared to brando was in terms of his ability to, to to not necessarily disappear into a role but to bring himself to the role and make it you know his physicality but Brando was right in your analogy but i would actually just throw it a little bit further left of brando let's go montgomery clift because he saw his face and he had he was riddled with i don't know completely with self-loathing or self-doubt I mean, you look at any performance with Mon montgomery clift and the doubt is written on his face all the way the anxiety is right there mickey rourke doesn't have that anxiety until a certain point in his career and then it's just regret you know um but another as you said it's a phenomenal cast marisa tomei is superb in it as well superb you know, um, but as you said, Evan Rachel Wood steals the show. I thought she did. Yeah. I, thought, I, 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 I mean, Marissa Tomei, I thought was really inspired casting. I think the first time I saw her was what my cousin with Vin, my cousin Vinny, where she's, you know, she's got so many tools as an actress. She's funny. She's beautiful, but not distractingly beautiful. And here she is kind of burned out the overlap between these two characters. I mean, as we mentioned at the outset of this of this recording, originally this was going to be a ballet dancer falling in love with a wrestler. 
Not so appropriate, not so likely. It's much more <laughs> uh, probable that a wrestler like Randy the Ram is going to fall for a stripper. And here they both have their personas. They both have the real name, which they're kind of hiding from, the private life they're kind of hiding. And, you know, their, their whole lives are lived before many unknown eyes. That's, you know. And, uh, and I found their chemistry very compelling. I mean, the whole thing is just so fucking tragic. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You see it coming, everything yeah. where it's headed. And maybe the, the reason why, I mean, there's no doubt for us that Evan Rachel Wood, her character, Stephanie, excuse me, Stephanie, um, uh, steals the show. is because she has, she, she brings that, as you said, that spiritual element to the story. And what we're responding to is the light that she offers, right? Um, and we can understand perfectly why she keeps on pushing Randy away, right? Um, uh, and yet we, we want her to, to embrace it. And yet we know that if she does, that's not good for her. You know, so it's the cliche of the cruel to be kind. Um, but then we, we, then we compare uh, Stephanie to, to is, um, I'm trying to Pam is uh, Marisa Tomei's character. Yeah. Or is Cassidy. Um, and everybody actually has double names, don't they? I mean, Randy uh, is Robin, but then his daughter has a different surname. Right. You know, right. as you said, it's the performance and the interior world. Um, and I think the, the really, really interesting thing for, for Aronofsky to direct here is he's directing actors who have different tech acting techniques. You know, Evan Rachel Wood downplays, 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 downplays. And Marisa Tomei smiles, 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 smiles. And she's like, um, you can't, because she's so pretty, but also she's so, I think really she's more endearing. I yeah. think you have actors and actresses who are very, very pretty, but they're not endearing. There's something very, sometimes they're very selfish about their, their beauty. They're not going to share it with you. What they want is only your affection and adoration. You don't get that feeling of all from Marisa Tomei's performances. And then Mickey Rourke is just a very, very different, you know, methody, very, very real. And how Aronofsky was able to juggle those three and not for not to, for one to upset or unbalance the others was quite a quite an achievement. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Marissa Tomei, sometimes I've talked to some actors and they make the point that intelligence is really often quite distracting for an audience to watch in an actor. And Tomei, as much as she tries to hide it, playing somebody who's clearly had no education, the character I'm, I'm saying, you can tell she is really bright and she's very educated. And I, I, I haven't looked into it, but I, I think she probably comes from a family of intellectuals, academics or something. She has that air about her. Um, that with Mickey Rourke, who has these great instincts, but he is somebody that comes from a very abusive background and very much Mickey Rourke's background is much more in line with the damage you see with his daughter in this story. Not to suggest that she was physically abused because we don't have any sign of that, but friends that I've had or people that I've met that have been physically abused, her response of the needs that she requires from her father that she's seeking. And then the father really trying to use her as a kind of parent 
uh, surrogate, right? I mean, he's trying to get, please forgive me. Please accept me. I'm all alone. I don't deserve to be loved, but I need to be. I don't have anywhere else to go. I, I can't even afford paying for my trailer, which stuck in my craw a little bit because he's paying $100 for a lap dance, but he's not paying for rent for his trailer, so he has to sleep in his van. Um but I, I think almost of Aronofsky here is like this conductor of such unusual instruments because these these three should not mix as well as they do. And yet uh, for all of their different acting approaches and backgrounds and our suppositions about them based on previous roles, I find every second of this film believable. Every line of dialogue is totally believable. Um, you have some great moments, uh, Mickey Rourke's speech on the Jersey Shore to his daughter about everything that he did wrong. You never did anything wrong, you know? I used to try to, oh, forget about you. <laughs> I used to try to pretend that you didn't exist, but I can't. You're my girl. You're my little, you're my little girl. And now, I'm an old broken down piece of meat and I'm alone. And I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. It's as good as I think anything Brando did. Um, in on the waterfront, yeah, you know, for me, I, I I feel more listening to Rourke's performance than I do with Brando's, and I know Brando never really liked his speech in that as much as everybody else did. Yeah, yeah, I think I think because there is a certain degree of poetry that Bud Schilbert just couldn't help but put into the yes. story. Yeah, however much they were trying to make it real, it was very very romantic. Okay, and Aronofsky's Romanticism is much of a different different strain, but you know you're talking about the, the backgrounds of Marisa Tomei and the backgrounds of Mickey Rourke. You know it's it's hard then to talk about Evan Rachel Wood without acknowledging that she herself has said that she's a victim of sexual assault. She's a victim. She's a rape survivor, twice, you know, and then she had a very very abusive relationship with Marilyn Manson, um, and then she has gone forward to to very publicly announce these things, and she's I think she's. She didn't. She didn't. She sit before a committee in in Congress or something like this about yeah. um, uh, sexual sexual assault, you know. So to bring that in, you know, it's it's hard then to watch the film without bringing our knowledge of those events to the characters. Um, and it, but as you said, the, I like your phrase there: the instrumentation of the actors. They are very very different instruments. Um, and then he, Aronofsky is a conductor, but he seems to, as I said to you, he loves it loud. He really loves emotionally loud. There's, that's the, the thing that I find is hard to watch is because there's no subtlety here, none. It's like, it's like when Randy slices his thumb open on that, the, the, the slicer. That's what the movie is like on the edge all the time. You're waiting for this absolute disaster to happen. Um, but also the, the, the thing uh, besides that, what I really liked Brain about the design of the film is that a lot of the time the camera is behind Mickey Rourke as he's walking through the spaces. So it is a bit of a documentary. Mm. So we are observing him. We are observing. 
And then if you look at it, I, I just couldn't help but notice the amount of doors he walks through. Everything is, it's not an entrance. It's, it's, he's moving from one space to another space, but emotionally in his life, there's no movement at all. You know, um, there's no advancement. He, he comes from the background, backstage onto the stage. He goes through the kitchens in the supermarket or whatever. And poor old Randy goes nowhere in life. And I think that's one of the reasons why Aronofsky made that visual decision. It's just to follow him. There's, it, it, you could see that they shot the scenes in long takes and then they cut off the jump cuts, which makes it feel more, much more of a, of a documentary feel. But as I said, the design there is just moving through these spaces and he never moves anywhere. No, I, I felt I, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a really interesting point is he is trapped and he has this ticking time bomb in his chest. And, you know, he, there's no safe place to go really other than death. Yeah. In, in a way, uh, a lot of this reminded me as like a kind of like the theater and design of a bullfight. Instead right. of being 15 minutes, you get an hour and a half. But you have a bull enter a ring after never having seen a bull ring or a man off a horse. And watching that, one of the first things that allows you, because you're meant to connect with the bull, not the matador. The matador is playing the role of death, is when the bull, like in any nightmare, understands that everything that is around them is a complete conspiracy for their demise. Yeah. Everything is there to watch you die in ritualized torture and execution. And there's something about Rourke that's like that. Every bull reacts to that moment of recognition in a unique way. And often it's terrible to watch. Most bullfights are terrible because like most of us, if, if the plane, you know, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, the plane is going down. We're all about to die. Most of us do nothing. We don't even freak out. We don't try to fix anything. If there's a terrorist on the plane, we do not want to get into any trouble. We just don't act. There's a lot of research on this. And Mickey, even though he's living this life of extremes, I think what we can connect with is I've known people that had heart problems. My father had a heart problem and would not literally go across the street to the hospital to fix it. And, and so with Mickey, it's, it's almost like an animal who is injured, badly injured, or is in a trap yeah. and doesn't, doesn't know what to do. And the only solution he can think of is maybe to bite his leg off to yeah. escape. <laughs> way through, the, through their way through the injury. Again, when I was watching it, I was just reminded of what you were saying about the world that resting or the position that resting holds in America. And who goes to the shows and for what purpose? And um, you know, for the for the audiences that tune in and watch it on TV, I think it's very, very different to I wonder how many of them would have watched this this movie and enjoyed it. Because as far as I can make out, the real life wrestlers admired the film, although they said it's a gross misrepresentation of the world of wrestling. Mm. Um, but then I wonder at what level are these wrestlers performing? Because we're talking about the, the top end of the wrestlers where, you know, they would be surely they're earning vast sums of money. Um, I wouldn't say vast. I, I mean, decent money at the highest level. But I think wrestling, wrestling is one of those 
areas of sports where there's no real union or oversight. So the person making all the money is the person who owns it. You know, I, I'm in Stanford, Connecticut, which is a mile away from the WWE headquarters. Yeah. Vince McMahon is a billionaire. You don't hear about any wrestlers being on the top earnings list at Forbes of athletes, <laughs> despite its popularity, despite the money yeah. it's generating. Um, these, these guys are really hamstrung by having an impossible workload and not a hell of a lot of compensation yeah. re relative to how popular it is. Sure. And you would think, though, that given, the, given the, the, the risk in the sport is greater than, you know, tennis and basketball, yeah, and sure, they, sure. Would, they would be unionized. You would think they would be unionized. So you start to wonder whether the union is, 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 uh, is prohibited. As you're saying, the, the people who run the show, the people who run the, 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 the arena are controlled are taking, taking all the money for themselves. I well, mean, it's a monopoly. I mean, that's the issue is there's there's really one place to go. Right. And and if you control that, what, what recourse do they have to work for another outfit? There's no real competition. Yeah. And uh, no, I mean, it's a it's a it's a real gauntlet for the people that participate. And I mean, I grew up with it as a kid. But I mean, it was just a fascinating way to look at the world. I mean, wrestling is a controlled experiment to provoke emotion. Good phrasing, yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't care what the emotion is, but if you care, if it finds you, if it's something you're scared of, if it's something you particularly dislike, if there's antagonism, if it's something you support, any geopolitical issue can be distilled to a character. Yeah, well, you see it in the, the Ayatollah character there at the end. and that's right you know mickey goes out in front of him but you know again when you're pointing out that in terms of the amount of um pop the, the popularity that boxing used to have yeah and the way it's waned and other sports have taken its place and and but wrestling is much more popular right oh absolutely and mm -hmm. and it has a i think a, a very large white audience i mean as so many of the sports in america have become dominated by people of color um, you know, baseball is predominantly a Latino sport. Boxing is a Latino sport, uh, you know, mainly Latino, then African-American, and then you have other other yeah. groups. Um, wrestling, like the UFC, are kind of foxholes yeah. for, for white athletes to still yeah. have a prominent role. And so their audience that is looking to see themselves, I think that that is an element. And, and we've seen both of these sports be heavily politicized from a conservative angle. Vince McMahon and his wife are powerful donors, and, and McMahon's wife is, I think, herself a senator or a congresswoman. And the UFC, Dana White spoke at Trump's convention. So Trump turn up, wasn't he a regular on the show? And his, and, and his family. So I think that that is, that is an aspect to where the sports are right now that is quite interesting because I don't think any other sport would openly court uh, political partisanship the way both of these sports do. Well, we've seen that in the last week with the Congressional, uh, sorry, the Presidential Medal of Freedom offered to the coach of the New England Patriots and he turned it down. He, he said at the moment, I think maybe he left the door open for maybe a, a future president to, to award it to him. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It's just, so to avoid that partisan thing but as you're saying uh, wrestling has embraced it well yeah i mean mc, mc vince mcmahon and his wife uh, you know as i say his wife is a prominent i think congresswoman 
Um, but but McMahon absolutely has been a big GOP supporter forever. Um, and I think also for me, frankly, like wrestling is an interesting lens into, you know, film is so dominated by liberals yeah. that it's interesting to have a very benevolent angle of conservative entertainment, which is, I think, what wrestling is, is it, it really does showcase a lot more prominent conservative voices like the UFC and sort of sees how, see how they want to have fun and how they want to bring people in to enjoy uh, I think that's an interesting angle on it, but uh, this film doesn't go after that because I think you have one one aspect of the the coupling of these two films, The Wrestler and Black Swan, is we begin with The Wrestler at the end of the martyrdom, and Black Swan is at the beginning of somebody finally getting the big role. Well, Randy the Ram has had decades, you know, presumably. 10, 15 years of being at the pinnacle of the sport, performing in front of, you know, like Randy Macho Man Savage, 90,000 people at WrestleMania three at the Pontiac Dome in Detroit. Like if he has that same backstory, and it seems like he does, here, here he is going to uh, legions to, yeah. to sign autographs for often invalids and, you know, uh, fringe, fringe collectors. Yeah, I was when I was watching it again uh, during the week. Um, it struck me that the the opening credit sequence, the camera drifts across all these pendants and posters and articles and photographs of Randy when he was at his height, and you've got this throbbing, pulsing piece of music on the soundtrack, and then the, the credit sequence ends, and then you see him from behind, a mysterious figure with his big uh, puffed up jacket, his blonde hair deliberately concealing his face, concealing his identity. And I thought that would have been a much better way to open the film without us seeing all the posters. I would have thought it'd be much more revelatory if we had only seen those posters when we get into his van. And yeah. he, he sees that. And that's where I think it would have been much more effective to show that, that this guy had it. He was a contender. Yeah. It's not that he could have been. He was the contender. And it would have been the energy. I can understand why they didn't do it. They did it the, the way they did it, because it provides great energy and impetus into the story to kickstart it. But it would have been much more enigmatic and mysterious. It would have pulled us in a lot more to discover, wow, he once had the mansion on the hill. And now he's living in the trailer park, not even in the trailer park. He's now been locked out and he's living in the back of his back of his um his, his car and then a really really poignant moment when he calls to the kids he says hey do you want to play some video games hey adam you want to play nintendo he is playing he's he's there in the video just that was a really good layer i thought to the to the story you know but you're absolutely right this is after this is the fall of it you know yeah. Um, and Black Swan brings us the brings us the rise, and and I mean I, I mean we can get toward the the beats of this plot because I think it it's one of those fascinating films that seems almost like uh, like elements of Beethoven where somebody would say oh it's so simple that's what I like about it simple no it's not <laughs> yeah <laughs> no it's not there's nothing simple about it I remember Nabokov saying the Saturday Evening Post is simple. Melville is not simple. <laughs> Similarly, 
um, this is not simple, but it does have that feeling of, wait a minute, this is the backstory of, of this is the cliche of wrestlers. And all Aronofsky's done is give us a backstage pass to how they actually operate in wrestling. He's learned the jargon that we have the baby faces and the heels and, you know, what are we going to do when we get in the ring and all of that, that it is plotted out. And, uh, you know, finding one of these broken down characters, as was showcased in Beyond the Mat with Jake the Snake, to to really poignant effect. Um, let's just move a little ways away from that and then create the daughter situation, create the stripper. So there's a bit of somebody who can sort of save him and offer him another life beyond wrestling, which we get right at the ending where he has to make that definitive choice. I mean, great, great conflict with everybody of what they need and their inability to overcome those obstacles i mean it sells every one of them to me where i don't want to watch anymore but i have to watch yeah you're you're yeah you're strapped to the to the suicide bomber in a way you know um but the the thing though is it it brings me back to what we were discussing in in relation to a number of films film is not built on desire you know, we're often told, you know, if the character's got to be admirable, admirable and sexy and this, that, and the other, and you want to be them. I said, no, it's not. It's about empathy. Yeah. And that's the reason why we empathize with Rocky. And that's the reason why we empathize with Randy is because for all, we know that he's hurling towards the abyss, but we want to be like Pam, Marisa Tomei's character, just to catch him before, before he falls. And it turns it into... A tragedy, yes, but even that very, very final shot where he makes the decision to make the leap and he's standing on the ropes and he's in tears and he's beating himself almost like King Kong, right? Yeah. And the empathy remains right there and you're hoping that, that what what is part and parcel of empathy is hope is that the person will be able to survive or avoid the, the imminence of death. And... um it just, as you said, I know I'm repeating what you said. I can't watch this again for a long, long time. And in actual fact, maybe, Bryn, as we're getting older, there's going to be some a point in time when emotionally we're not fit to watch it. <laughs> well, and, and you know, that moment with the daughter, he skips out on a dinner. They've had a really touch. She's finally let him back into her life. And they go out to the Jersey Shore. They have this incredible exchange. It's both. I mean, as I say, I think her listening to Mickey Rourke's speech is better acting than him delivering the speech. And he is wonderful delivering the speech. And they, you know, there's this reconciliation. There's this dangling of redemption where you think this is not going to go where I know it has to go. If character is fate. Yeah. You can't trust this guy because he's too damaged. And he has this ridiculous night after, after where he has some random sex and cocaine and uh, she wants him to be a fireman and there's all this weird fireman paraphernalia in her apartment. It's a, it's a funny scene. And that's the other thing about this movie that's disturbing is there's a lot of humor in it. Mickey is incredibly lovable when he's at the deli counter and has, I think, Todd Berry, a wonderful stand-up comedian playing his boss as he's interacting with the customers, a lot of which was improvised. So, so you're seeing Mickey in a very Brando kind of way, um, 
you know, he's he's somebody that is so resourceful with his improvisation. I mean, referring to some old woman as a spring chicken or <laughs> what kind of ham is good here? So, yeah, exactly. And he takes his time and he figures out oh, it's charm. And so an, actor, an actor like Mickey Rourke would, would have it in spades if they want to turn it on. They, it's like a fire hose. They turn it on, you're doused in the charm and, they turn, and, and, that, and that's it. Yeah. And, and, and just to close is then he doesn't see his daughter as he's promised just to take her out to dinner. Yeah. But you see her frozen, frozen in self-preservation. Well, there's, there's rage, but she is catatonic with suffering, with reliving the trauma of this relationship she has with this somebody that she needs but can't have and finally comes to this conclusion I don't want to know you. I don't hate you. I feel nothing. And the way she is just shivering in okay. agony yeah. is so awful. And the way Mickey Rourke is responding, both his character as the father, but also that this is somebody that has lived through that trauma with their own yeah. relationship to their parents. And you see in this frozen mask that he has with the plastic surgery, these weird trapped eyes oh, looking yeah. out. Yeah, he can't, he can't emote. The, the, the face has become so distorted. So the eyes are the only way that he can ever give an indication of what he's feeling. Two little things. Um, you know, Evan Rachel Wood, in that moment, she actually re reminded me of like a, a very, very frightened animal trembling in the rain and in the cold, right? Just frozen to it on a frozen, frozen wasteland. But also, you know, and I know this is going to, it's a really, really unfair comparison because the movie that I'm about to, say, about to cite is absolute trash. Okay. <laughs> absolute. The champ. Okay. John Voigt playing the boxer who's trying to get the money to save the kid because he's lost his wife, you know, the, the marriage has gone south and all this sort of stuff. And that's, you know, the, the most schmaltzy, obscene <laughs> of filmmaking. It's a remake of a 1931 movie with uh, Wallace Beery. But Zeffirelli had his most saccharine, I wouldn't say best, but saccharine worst. And then compare it, it just, it just shows how far removed and how, sorry, not how far removed, how well preserved Aronofsky kept this story because it doesn't go into schmaltz because it's Ever. too, it's too hard hitting, you know? And, and, you know, that final scene is, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of nods I thought to Rocky and, and, uh, oh. Got the religion. I mean, he's got he's got the tattoo on his back of Christ. Yeah, he's got, yeah, tattoo on his back of Christ. Yeah, it's yeah. No, Aronofsky's not subtle, but <laughs> but when he gets in the ring and we see the little moment in the lead up, I mean, that's the magic of this too. Is the dynamic between wrestlers, it, like the congeniality, right. is so unexpected that these guys are themselves actors. They're performers. They're not freaks because they need to be freaks. They're freaks because we need them as an audience to be freaks, yeah. which is interesting because we don't like to look at that. As I say, wrestling is just a social experiment for the audience. Yeah, they're, they're social contract. They're, they're, con they're, they're um, products of our society, our emotional needs. They're right. right. Just as just as, you know, pornography is yeah. not it's not we're not acting out the fantasies of porn stars. With no. what films they're making, they're they're giving us what we're willing to pay for. It's always a mirror of us. Yeah. And Aronofsky is obsessed with mirrors. Mirrors are everywhere in his films. Shattered mirrors, 
glances at mirrors, avoiding mirrors. Uh, he, I, I've never seen somebody quite so resourceful with them. I mean, other than like Orson Welles and Lady, Lady from Shanghai. <laughs> yeah, but also you were talking about Rocky there, and Marisa Tomei is Adrian. Yeah, she goes to his fight. You know, exactly. I'm here. I'm with you. you know, and it just shows. You know, um, it's you were saying the beats of the story would be very, very similar. The construction of the story. And it's just the tone that leads us in Rocky to a fairy tale and this one to a really, really dark, 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 dark tragedy. Because the elements are the same, you know? Uh, you've got the, the heels and the performers and the di taking a dive and um, he's on his own. He's looking for the, the redemption and the girl, beautiful girl. It, the difference is in, in, in uh, the restaurant, there's a daughter. Yeah. Rocky doesn't have one yet, you know? Yeah. Um, but it is... It, as I was, I'm not kidding. I don't know when I'll be able to watch this movie again. <laughs> Just getting to the point. No, and, and, and you're and you're quite right. I mean, Rocky. Also, it's important to remember. Eventually, I think in Rocky Five, cast his own son, Sage Stallone, who dies, I think, in his 30s, in his mid 30s. So, what Stallone is trying to present in the fairy tale, avoiding any of the realities of boxers or people involved in this pursuit, so it's reassuring. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a feel-good movie. Aronofsky wants to go the other direction in terms of realism. So not only is it does it feel like a documentary in how it's presented, but it's much more the the fidelity to the actual people yeah. and their family dynamics. Uh, this feels much more real. And as you say, if the aim is to create empathy, I think this certainly took me to a lot of people I know that are like Randy the Ram. Now, they weren't professional wrestlers, but the ones who you knew by about 14 or 15, the, the end is not going to be good for this person. They, they're already talking at that age about not living very long, and a lot of those people don't live very long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, talking about living long, the movie has, I mean, it's only 12 years old, It'll be interesting to see how it ages further. Um, uh, I think it'll, it'll age well for first-time viewers. But again, yeah. to revisit is a, is a, it's a tough call. No, enough. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 thought, I thought I was thinking from the perspective, you and I are trying to write this thing or direct it. It's a tall order to cap everything that came up to that final wrestling scene. And every moment of that with the Ayatollah character who's breaking character with Randy again and again and again because he sees the suffering. He knows something is wrong. You okay? Just pin me. Like, you don't have to go where you want to go. But Aronofsky drives home, I think, very rightly. It feels artistically right. Um, this guy wants one place to go. You can't save him because where he wants to go is death. And then you get the Sopranos cut to black as yeah. as the heart attack yeah. happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it allows us that moment where we decide, OK, we can fill it in as opposed to being told exactly what 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 has happened. Perfect ending. Yeah. <clears throat> perfect. And ending. The, the funny is there, there are some people I've met who said but we didn't. See, it's an ambiguous ending. We didn't see him die. I said, no, 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 guys, you don't. You're not reading. He's dead. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> No, I, I mean, I, I don't know how many prompts you need that his heart is really giving him problems that probably jumping off the top rope as a 57-year-old man 
probably it's not like suggestive. <laughs> it's underlined, you know, yeah. he's dead. Yeah. Um, no, I love this and uh, I don't ever want to probably watch it again for 10 years, but I, I, I thought I, I do not believe that Sean Penn playing Harvey Milk is in any way close to the performance that this was. Even though I love Sean Penn as Harvey Milk, I think this was a much more difficult role, even though it probably required Mickey's entire life to to make it the perfect role for him. But, you know, whatever it needs to get you there, whatever, whatever it takes to get you there. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't hold back. He didn't hold back. I mean, I think when he won, when he won the Golden Globe, I think Mickey Rourke said, you know, um, you've got to be prepared when you're working with Aronofsky. He's going to really push you. So you got to be prepared to bring it. And he did. You know, he did. He wasn't complaining about it. Uh, but the pity then is that um, Mickey Rourke wasn't able to follow it up, find another avenue for him to explore as an actor. Um, so that's yeah, that was that's the high point. I think I think just the face, as we're seeing with Nicole Kidman, with these TV shows, uh, I, I like Nicole Kidman as an actress, but that face that she has now with the Botox, uh, it just totally takes me out of being able to follow her performances. I find myself saying as I watch her, The Undoing Project, and um, what is what is the other one with Reese Witherspoon? Little White Lie, or um, Big Little Lie, Little Big Lies. Yeah, a little bit, which is amazingly good. I mean, I'm I'm loving these female-dominated stories because it's it's a side we desperately need to see, and it's such rich territory. But her face, like Mickey's, how how do you put Mickey as any kind of role that's not extreme with just how he looks? I don't know. That's the thing, you know. I mean, looking at Nicole Kidman and Mickey Rourke, it's it's like looking at a Disney cartoon, Frozen. That's really what we're looking at. It's just. <laughs> Sorry, that was the cheap go. <laughs> no, no, but but he's wonderful in this. I, I I think I think it's my favorite Aronofsky film. Well, no, prob probably Black Swan is a little. Okay. I like it more. Um, I just think that uh, I just remember this being a pretty seminal film experience for me, just with the performances and the direction and uh, a, just the unexpectedness of it. It was just such interesting territory for this Harvard-educated director of Pi. I didn't think he could ever get to this. Yeah, it. it I mean, it, I know it came out two years later, but it, it's amazing because The Fighter comes out mm -hmm. two, two years later. And, you know, obviously there's two years in the timeline as we're going to the movies. But looking back from the removal of 2021, the movies are actually crushed together. Yeah. Are, you know, one after the other. <clears throat> And the fighter um, has, because it's based on a true story, um, it was it had also the semblance of greater success because neither of the actors actually did the characters die, and Mickey Ward didn't die, did he? he I don't think he. he no, 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 no. It's, it's 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 very much set up as a feel good too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You, know, you don't you don't see him now where he's suffering the effects of that kind of fighting. Right. Yeah. Uh, but no, this was this was a lot of fun. Uh, I look forward to its coupling, and I guess we're severing the umbilical cord between this and Black Swan as it was originally intentioned. But but Long this was great uh, fun. This is going to be a solo performance. Yeah. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.